Alongside chants decrying police brutality and racism, there has been one chant that is a policy proposal, defund the police. Protesters argue that the American system of policing has become too bloated and too powerful, and that system creates a culture of impunity that results in some of the violence we've seen nationwide. While the claim itself is radical, it has moved the Overton window, allowing even moderates to ask why so much of government's function are offloaded on the police. For the San Diego Union-Tribune, I'm Daniel Wheaton, and this is your San Diego News Fix. John Wilkins, you cover a number of things at the Union-Tribune, and you wrote about this topic over the weekend. And as we're speaking right now, San Diegans are calling into the city council, asking for them to defund the police. Let's explain that core argument. What are these protesters asking? Well, they're, they're suggesting that uh, we should take some of the money that is spent uh, for law enforcement and shift it over to services that are better uh, able to address some of the root causes of the problems in various communities around San Diego. Yeah, it does seem like over time, the duties of police have grown to include pretty much any societal ill. Can you walk us through that history that led to police officers kind of dealing with everything? Well, I mean, you can trace it back to cutting of funding for various social services and to uh, politicians uh, running on law and order uh, platforms and being elected by voters on those platforms. So you've seen gradually money shift away from social services, uh, community-based social services, and being put on the shoulders of the police, who now are asked to do all sorts of duties that they were not originally trained to do and get very little help learning how to do uh, while they're on the job. So, you know, we've had the war on drugs, we've had war on homelessness, all these various wars that have come up over the years, and it falls to the police to go out in the community and try and solve a lot of those problems. And, you know, as they go out in the community, they tend to be... um, armed and otherwise militarized. So that's created some tension points as time has gone on. Yeah, that's one thing that's really been interesting with just this conversation ever since uh, the tragic killing of George Floyd is that, you know, we never really question the fact that if someone's having a mental health crisis, the system says a stranger with a gun is going to show up when, if you think about it, that doesn't really make much sense. Yeah, yeah, it, it doesn't. And it's a kind of an easy way for us to deal with it. We just We just put them in charge of everything and send the money in that direction. But I think over time, people are beginning to realize that maybe that's an approach that should be reconsidered and talked about. So in San Diego in particular, you're seeing uh, people question uh, the need to increase funding for the police by, I think it's $27 million is the mayor's proposal, specifically coming at a time when uh, city funding looks to be cut because of the coronavirus pandemic. Mm-hmm. And when you were reporting this story, were there any specific programs or goals that activists wanted money to be, you know, diverted to? Well, there's there's talk, as you mentioned, of of mental health services, uh, homeless services that are community based, um, using people in the community who uh, could uh, could address uh, violence prevention uh, issues. So it's really more of a holistic approach. The idea being that you you would use people who are living and working in the community right now, as opposed to police police officers who may or may not live in that area, rolling in, in, in police cars and in uniforms and carrying guns to address those issues. Mm-hmm. 
And also in your past reporting, you've spoken to a lot of groups that, you know, have said something similar to this in the past. Um, I'm thinking about your homeless coverage. So how do you see those themes that you've heard from activists when it comes to that issue kind of resonate when it comes to this new topic? Well, um, you know, it's uh, I think it's something that you see get talked about whenever there's a crisis is what's the best way for us to address it. I think the um, sort of defund the police part of it has been around for a while. We saw it after uh, the various other uh, killings of black Americans by the police over the past decade. It seems to have taken on a particular resonance this time around, um, largely because of the size of the crowds that are protesting, largely because of the video that went with this particular uh, killing. And uh, I think you're also throwing into the mix the COVID-19 the death rates that uh, um, we're seeing in communities of color and the, some of the economic strain that everybody's feeling because of that pandemic, it's all rolling into one giant ball where people are saying uh, we need to do something differently. Yeah, it's truly historic. This is like the one time in which the usual forces that get people to stop protesting and marching in the street aren't there with unemployment as high as it is. People have the time and, you know, are angry and are willing to continue to voice their opinions until, you know, some form of change happens. And there's a, there's a, a, a nationwide and worldwide momentum behind it. People who started doing the protesting are now seeing people joining them in other places and um, the numbers are swelling. They were huge over the weekend. So the interest, one of the interesting questions as we follow this story going forward is just uh, how much longer this will continue, what kind of shape it will take moving forward, and um, sort of what's the end game? What, what kind of change are people hoping for? And how are the various government agencies going to respond to those calls? Yeah, one of the things that really stuck out to me about this time last week, right when you had uh, Trump have that show in Lafayette Park, of you saw police departments across the country functionally gear up for a war while we saw people fighting COVID-19 in hospitals, like having to use garbage bags for PPE. It just felt like here's the most obvious way of showing where we've you know put our priorities. We've focused so much on funding police that we've defunded other programs that are equally as vital. Right. And that's certainly playing into the arguments that we're seeing around the country now. And, and the size of the police force, uh, the budgets across the country, just make them a really, uh, when, when they have a crisis on their hands as they do now, I think their funding becomes a, uh, an attractive target for people to say, this is, you know, it's a pillar of their legitimacy. So it's a way for people to say, you know, if we attack that in a constructive way, maybe we can get some of the changes that we have been unable to uh, enact in the past. Uh, early on in this, uh, in the demonstrations and protests, you saw some of the same arguments that we saw before, which were about things like uh, de-escalation training, um, better, uh, better anti-bias training, things like that. And and now these are being uh, joined, if not supplanted, by arguments about whether we should be looking at how much money the police receive and whether that money should be going elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, policing is one of those jobs that is kind of dependent on a like a functional social contract. When speaking to people on your story, how broken do you feel that social contract is today? Well, it depends on the community, right? I mean, in certain communities and certain wealthier white communities in San Diego, they're accustomed to calling the police and having the police come help them. 
I think in communities of color, too often for the residents there, uh, the calls, the, the police arrive and uh, they're seen as part of the problem and not part of the solution. So, you know, I think it depends a lot on where you live and what your experience has been. Mm-hmm. And one thing with this movement is that it quickly becomes sort of memed. I suppose, like uh, you can consider how Medicare for all kind of devolved into a black hole during the Democratic primaries. When writing this story, uh, did you have anyone kind of discuss uh, the dangers of like the real goal of this getting lost in like the catchphrases that we see? No, that's really not something I explored in the story or, or talked much about in my reporting. I was more focused on the idea of this of this happening right now and a little bit of the history for it. But, you know, we do live in an interesting age, right? We're in the Twitter age where everybody wants to kind of uh, reduce things to uh, simple slogans and things tend to veer off into uh, the various partisan camps. So I think we'll see a lot of that attempt uh, uh, to politicize it as it moves forward. And one side will be uh, joined with, uh, with liberal side and one side may be automatically assumed to be part of the conservative side. Uh, So that's one of the interesting things we'll have to watch as this moves forward, uh, too, whether it just gets, uh, you know, slammed into the traditional uh, partisan pigeonholes or whether there's a really sort of honest and deep ongoing conversation about what all it means and about what kind of a role we want the police to have in our society moving forward. Yeah, as we were talking about earlier, it seems that this time and place in the middle of a pandemic with unemployment worse than America has ever seen, perhaps this is the time in which we can have those deeper discussions of this is what our society should be because, you know, people have the time and the means via the internet to have that discussion while in the past it would have been, you know, discussed in smoky rooms and somewhere. Right. And I don't think there's any way to underestimate the power of the internet and social media in terms of spreading the word about the protests and the demonstrations, both where they're being held and how they should be held. We're watching all that uh, unfold here, and it's had a huge amount of influence on how all this has played out. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I just I think it's a really fascinating uh, moment in history for all uh, all of us to be caught up in, and for it to be happening at the same time as the COVID nineteen pandemic uh, makes it all uh, pretty head spinning. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about before we went live that uh, we saw a really fast movement with the police, with the banning of the carotid restraint. And soon after, pretty much every agency in the county has followed suit. Some people have criticized this as low-hanging fruit. If this is something that was on the table before and they just kind of moved ahead and made that choice. When speaking to local leaders and others, what is their perspective on, you know, this movement? Well, first of all, they're very happy that it's happened. Both those things are things they've been working for for many, many years. So, they think it will make a big difference, especially the carotid restraint one. But they're also wary of the motives behind it. They also think that um, it may be uh, something that was fairly easy for the various elected officials and law enforcement agencies to do at this point. And there's and there's some suspicion uh, that it's uh, an attempt to uh, head off in some way the larger discussion uh, about fundamental roles and funding of police. In, in society. So, you know, I mean, even when we talk about defunding the police, no one who is in favor of that believes it's something that's going to happen right away or should happen right away. It's part of an ongoing conversation. Um, some places you're clearly seeing it happen 
faster than others. It's the whole discussion of dismantling the police is taking on a really, really large role in the discussion about what should happen in Minneapolis, for example. But for the most part, proponents of these discussions understand that this is a long game and that uh, ideas of defunding or abolishing the police are um, are quite a ways down the road. So, um, but it's a step at a time. And I know that they are uh, happy about these recent changes and look forward to uh, other reforms and changes as they move towards their larger goals. Yeah, it's certainly interesting. And San Diego is in a unique position being one of the safest cities in America as well. You know, in a sense, that data itself maybe suggests that it would be possible to take officers and retrain them into different roles. So not every officer, you know, views everything through a specific lens. Right. And I, I think you would find uh, a number of police officers who would welcome that, a number of police officers who go into this line of work to help people. Um, they don't want to be in riot gear right now either. Um, so I think they would welcome that kind of conversation uh, and would be um, in favor of community-based programs that uh, that would work and could be demonstrated to work over the long haul. Mm-hmm. All right. John Wilkins, thank you so much. Thank you. In other news, county health officials struck a optimistic tone during Monday's COVID-19 briefing. They announced the opening of several businesses and facilities, including community pools, gyms, restaurants, bars, wineries, card rooms, family entertainment such as bowling and arcades, museums, galleries, zoos, aquariums, and hotels. All of those can open this coming Friday. Things that remain closed are nail salons, facial salons, tattoo parlors, massage parlors, movie theaters, conventions, concerts, and live audience sports. And opening immediately are day camps, playgrounds, RV parks, and sport fishing. Currently, 8,609 San Diegans have been sickened by the virus, with 1,429 needing to be hospitalized and 403 being admitted to the ICU. 296 people have died. Also, by 4 p.m. Monday, the city council was still listening to calls from citizens demanding that their council reject Mayor Kevin Faulkner's proposed $27 million budget increase to San Diego police. To find out what happened, check out the UT site. Thank you for listening to the San Diego News Fix. If you like this content, I recommend listening to our sister podcast, Name Drop San Diego. Join the UT's Abby Hamlin and Christy Totten as they have a conversation about race and police brutality with a local leader, Shane Harris. Name Drop San Diego is available wherever you get your podcast. This podcast is made possible by subscribers to the San Diego Union Tribune. As we live through this momentous time in history, the truth and facts matter. If you are not yet a subscriber, please go to uniontrib.com slash subscribe. Until next time.